On April 19, 2005, the College of Cardinals elected one of the most distinguished theologians of the last century to succeed John Paul II as Bishop of Rome. Join us today as we look back on the theological formation of Benedict XVI and look ahead to what we can project theologically during his papacy. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. talking about the theology of Pope Benedict XVI, and we have our theology professors here gathered for this challenging topic. Uh, professor Mike Cirilla here, a professor of moral and systematic theology, regular panelists, Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical theology, and recently we have both his books, The Swear to God, The Promise of the Power of the Sacraments, um, and Dr. Regis Martin, again a regular panelist, professor of systematic theology, and uh, he holds a doctorate from sacred theology from Rome. That's why we're making you the expert today, Regis. Written many articles and books and lectured at conferences throughout. Uh, the author of The Last Things, and you recently published What is the Church? Confessions of a Cradle Catholic. So therefore, you're our expert among this great panel, Regis, and we want to know about the fascinating background of Pope Benedict XVI. He grew up in the political climate of Nazi Germany. This is fascinating. You know, you, John Paul II growing up in Poland in the occupation, but here, someone who's actually growing up within the Nazi camp there in Germany. What effect did that have? And maybe that can be our launching point right, to understand yeah. this. Yeah, no, that's a good point of entry. Uh, but let, let me first say I'm awed by the company uh, I find <laughs> myself in. I'm not really an expert uh, on, on Benedict uh, the 16th, but uh, uh, I, I'm sure that we'll get lots of help uh, and, and move this uh, understanding uh, along. Uh, yeah, I think uh, he had, you might describe, a, a bad hair day. Uh, in Germany, as did most of the citizens of uh, the Third Reich. He lived under a fairly oppressive uh, regime. Uh, a totalitarian night had fallen over his beloved country, his beloved Bavaria. Uh, his own father uh, predicted that the, uh, the end times, the apocalypse uh, was coming, that with the victory of Hitler, that we had the Antichrist uh, Wow, uh, right with him, even though they were there in Germany, and under the Nazis, his own father is prophesying or predicting, this is it, the Antichrist. Right, he, he describes in, in that little book of his, Milestones, which is a charming and, and engaging uh, memoir of, of, of the years uh, of uh, 1927, when he was born until 1977, when he was sort of overwhelmed with huge Episcopal responsibilities. But in that book, he describes his parents, 
uh, as being real paragons of, uh, mm. of virtue and sanctity, sure. something of the radiance of God shone through the example of his parents. His father had been a policeman, but was evidently a very holy, gentle soul who uh, attended three masses on Sundays. But he also had, uh, says Ratzinger, unfailing clairvoyance when it came to the Third Reich. He could finger uh, exactly the threat that was coming, uh, and the family took measures uh, against it. They like survived. What, what kind uh, of measures well, the church. Okay. They, they retreated, yeah. I, I think, more deeply into this bastion of, of Holy Church. I think for, for Ratzinger, the experience of, of the Second World War fortified a sense of, of confidence in the capacity of the church to overcome these forces of, of, of evil and, and to he, triumph. The way he describes it, most Catholics in Bavaria, according to his memoirs, didn't succumb to the Third Reich, even though there were some notable exceptions. Most of them, uh, and he, he connects it to their Catholic faith, perceived the real threat and the outcome of continental liberalism yeah. resulting in this totalitarian evil. Is this because evil. Bavaria had an identity as that's a Catholic, yeah. That's the key, I think. I agree with everything you said except the bad hair day, <laughs> depending on how you spell hair. Um, the, uh, the culture was really key because Southern Germany was still predominantly Catholic, even if there had been some diluting or erosion. Uh, Bavaria, Southern Germany was still really uh, imbued with a great deal of Catholic culture. Northern Germany was heavily industrialized, Protestantized for centuries. And so you, have, you had a country, but it was really at cross purposes with itself. And so the, um, the, the, uh, the culture of the Catholic faith, especially as it developed after the Reformation, a Rococo architecture and this sort of thing, beautiful, very Eucharistic, almost extreme at points, but it was just reflective, I think, of, of what made it possible for families like his to kind of prosper in such difficult times. Yeah, he, he was steeped in a tradition of centuries-old Catholicism. It was in his bones. I, I think the, the, the man Benedict today would have been impossible, but for that shaping influence. And, and in fact, it began on the day of his birth. He was born on Holy Saturday. Uh, he was baptized the same day uh, uh, with water taken from the East vigil. Uh, at that time, uh, uh, the reforms had not been uh, instituted by Pius XII. And, and, and so he, he began his life in a kind of liturgical ambiance. Uh, and he describes these glorious masses of his youth and the Holy Day, uh, the Holy Week uh, experience, the ritual of, uh, of, uh, of the church being shut up and the shadows, the darkness, and then suddenly the priest announcing Christ is risen yeah. and, and, and all the curtains fall away. And this floods him with a sense of light uh, and, and this, I think, became really the cradle uh, for the most formative kind of development. And uh, yet, the, um, this is fascinating that it was so deep, and yet whenever I read about him, they talk about him being in renewal movements. Well, he, he stumbles upon that. I, I think the, the real figure uh, in this is de Lubach, Henri de Lubach, whose great work, Catholicism, the common Christ, the common destiny of humankind. I think he wrote it in 1938. Ratzinger uh, uh, stumbles upon it as a seminarian in the late 1940s, and it literally changes his life because what de Lubach did was to rediscover 
the idea of the Catholic, the universal, the all-encompassing, uh, the social dimension of membership in the faith, which has since been somewhat debased. It's now merely sociological. We celebrate ourselves. But with de Lubac and this movement of resource mon, the idea of the Catholic was rooted in the Trinity, you know, the persons of the Trinity, the perfection of communio uh, within the life of the Godhead. This, this universal vision of God's grace permeating all cultures, the whole world and every aspect of life, was also tapping into something that he was getting in, from Romano Guardini, you know, and, uh, this, this pioneer of, of authentic liturgical renewal. Romano Guardini is the German with the Italian name. Yeah. And his pioneering work in liturgical theology, I think also fit perfectly well with the Lubach. So, you know, being schooled in this environment, it was just the perfect way yeah. to kind of uh, capture what was the best of the, right. the midpoint of the 20th century. I mean, this, this notion of ressourcement, which is a French word, which, which literally means resourcing the past. In order to go forward, you have got to first go backward. Uh, it arose uh, uh, with a generation of intensely Catholic figures after the First World War. Uh, and they sensed uh, the disillusion of the period. Uh, and they felt two things pretty strongly. On the one hand, faith and theology have got to engage man where he is, uh, the concrete circumstances of his life. They've got to be relevant to the present uh, moment. But secondly, to be relevant, they've got to recover in a creative way a sense of the past. And it's not merely just a, <clears throat> an exercise in, in intellectual archaeology, but rather yeah. in the resource movement, and Ratzinger really is, his work is emblematic of this, the church is perceived under the influence of Augustine and the other great fathers as a single subject, a mystical person with a memory, with a history. So tradition is then seen not just as a concept or a, or a content of data, but rather as a living memory yeah. of a person the church who remembers Jesus Christ walking the earth and, and, and keeps that memory and shares it with the world. So uh, his theology of the church springs up in this movement. So re it's not just a, a dry looking at the sources, but it's, it's looking at the sources as the uh, root of our life as members of the church. So communio ecclesiology also arises. This right, notion this of resource mont shows us that we can't really update the faith without, you know, predating it by going back to the patristic and medieval periods, you know. And by the way, I, before we forget, I want to mention too that besides his parents, his older brother also set a, a really great standard, Georg. But, you know, to get back to this man. And, and they were ordained, I think, the same, same day, day. That's right. In yeah. 1952. Right. Yeah, beautiful family life embodied right. there. But you know, when you look at his two doctorates, uh, he got a doctorate focusing on Augustine and then a, a doctorate focusing on, on Bonaventure. Mm -hmm. You know, these two exemplary figures in the patristic and the medieval periods. And he didn't do something that was sort of over-specialized and very right. narrow. Yep. He really found the centerpiece yep. of both. He, he found the people of God in St. Augustine, his vision of the church. And then uh, uh, Bonaventure's uh, theology of history, this panoramic vision yeah. that was almost prophetic, whereby Bonaventure interprets all of history in the light of revelation. And so uh, assimilating, he didn't just write dissertations, he assimilated the, uh, the outlook of these two great saints and doctors. So where and was he, his own. you know, so many of us 
just remember, Giornamento, Vatican II, you know, was kind of, uh, how much did this well, that, preparation that's, that's, that's trust the other, then That's the then? other half of, of the Catholic equation. Yeah. Uh, Mike is right. Ressourcement is not about archaeology. Yeah. I mean, Chenu, the great French Dominican, said, I'm not a documentalist. I don't unearth dead uh, 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 artifacts yeah. from a sterile past. I am an historian. I want the past to live and breathe once more. There's a great Italian poet, Pavese, who said, uh, the past, memory is the past relived. Uh, it's a passion repeated. And, and this is what Resource Mon sought to do, to resurrect, revitalize the past. Only then can you usher in this movement of aggiornamento, which has to do with renewing structures, opening yourself to the world, no longer barricading the church against the world. But unless you've got something to give the world, then you're just going to be telling the world things the world already knows. The principle that governs aggiornamento has to be the lived memory of Christ yeah. and the truth He reveals and the love He offers and forgiveness that's uh, immortalized in the thoughts of the Fathers in their writings, rather than a secular contemporary rapprochement with the world that ends up undermining the very foundations yeah. of the church. So that's exactly right, Regis. Let's clarify some terms then. So, Resource Mont really emerges in the 40s and 50s, right. before Vatican II in the 60s. Yeah. And it means back to the sources. It's sort of, you know, back to the font uh, the patristic, the medieval, and also the biblical. Uh, aggiornamento is a term that really emerges in the 60s at the time of the Second Vatican Council. It means updating. So, you know, you go back to the sources in order to update. Right. And it's a balancing act, and it's not an easy one. No, no it you know, is because not. Because you have, on the one hand, this attempt to enculturate the gospel. Uh, I should say, to, yeah, to enculturate the gospel by looking at society and taking everything from the past and bringing it to bear upon our life today. And at the same time, you accommodate yourself to the right. culture right. by acknowledging whatever is true and good. And I think that was the spirit of aggiornamento. But there's a sense in which we fell over. Right. You know, right. we, we really tipped the scales. Aggiornamento simply swallowed up resource money. Updating and accommodating the culture overwhelmed this idea of going back to the sources and retrieving to, the fathers. To do that correctly. What's required is a proper, profound sense of history, which he got from both Augustine right. and Bonaventure and, and his right. own yep. formative years in, in Germany. Why is this happening? What's going on? But, yeah, but, but Scott, so, you're right. Nowadays, it's the world setting the agenda mm -hmm. for the church, which is a perversion of this ideal notion of aggiornamento. We're supposed to be open to the world, but we're not supposed to assimilate the world. Uh, that's the difference. Yeah, assimilation, I think, is the key because that's what's going on right now yeah. in many parts of, a, of the world, especially Europe, which is a principal concern for Pope Benedict. He sees a right. that really became a kind of disguise for radical assimilation of secular I'm values. not going to let you jump that far ahead already. <laughs> right, yeah. We're still building here in the We're not ready to rescue Europe. <laughs> right. So, but it's fascinating to see the foundation, the background, where Pope Benedict came from and where Father Ratzinger as the theologian was developing. And uh, so when we come back, we're going to take it the next step. You have to know where he comes from to understand where he is. And uh, we will take on Vatican II and what flows from that. Stay with us.
the opportunity of being a long-term volunteer for World Youth Day for eight months and seeing the German people's reaction to Pope Benedict when he first became Pope, the stern Ratzinger who they knew from his theological battles and things like that and telling them what to do, to seeing him come and them really embracing him and really seeing his love for the people and their love for him. At one point during his homily he said that if he could he would come out and, and meet every one of us individually um, and that just touched everybody. Um, we were just in awe, and it, it was wonderful because I knew he was a hard-hitter theologian, but at that point he really showed a gentleness of spirit and that he really was Papa. At the heart of the church, ex corde ecclesiae. That is where the Holy Father is calling Catholic universities to be, and that is where you'll always find Franciscan University of Steubenville. The church's lifeblood flows through our campus, from the classrooms to the playing fields and in our residence halls. This immersion in faith and reason equips our students to be the next generation of Catholic leaders. Its foundation is here at the heart of the church. talking about the theology of Pope Benedict XVI with our theology professors here from Franciscan University. And we've laid a foundation of uh, the Pope then, Father Ratzinger, and earlier growing up as a child in Nazi years and the gradual development. So now we want to take it to the next step. And Regis, you're our lead-off batter on these things. And um, so he starts to be a professor and teach at the university. And uh, what thrust is he taking then as we're moving closer and closer to Vatican II? Well, I mean, a couple of uh, preoccupations which are central to uh, fundamental theology. Uh, there's the area of, uh, of ecclesiology, the church, uh, his profound interest in St. Augustine, you know, the, the, the idea of the people and the house in Augustine's doctrine of the church. That becomes his, his doctoral thesis. Uh, and then he writes what's called the habilitation. Uh, this entitles a, a, a German professor to teach uh, anywhere, to occupy a chair. You've got to propose and defend a thesis. And here he, he deepens his, his, his understanding and takes on Bonaventure. And at first it's the idea of revelation. Uh, and, and Ratzinger, uh, in his book, uh, Milestones, this memoir, uh, recounts uh, the adventure of his habilitation. Uh, it, it precipitated a kind of crisis because uh, the first uh, uh, draft was rejected, or at least half of the book was rejected on the grounds that this is really too modern, this is too provocative. But the idea is later accepted, canonized at the Second Vatican uh, in Dei Verbum. And, and that idea is that revelation is really something greater than Scripture. It's, de it's deposited, as it were, in Scripture. Scripture gives us a verbal account of God's self-revealing Word, but revelation itself is an act. It's something that God does, uh, and it requires someone to receive it. Mary, the apostles, the church, you and, and, and I. And, and that is a deeper notion, and this is, is 
present in Bonaventure, uh, but it gets lost. There's a disconnect between Bonaventure uh, and the Second Vatican Council. But you're saying that um, that uh, the then father and then Cardinal Ratzinger is building on St. Yeah, Bonaventure? Because he has a hand in there. shaping Dei Verbum at the okay. council. He's, he's, he's asked by a, a, a He's a Pariti at that a, point, right. right? An expert brought in right. to advise and he, help the bishops. Yeah, he has a kind of affectionate understanding with the then Archbishop of uh, Cologne, Cardinal Frings. Mm. Uh, so Cardinal Frings uh, asks him to be his advisor, uh, and he contributes mightily, I, I think, to the work of the council. Mm. You know, it's interesting to see how providence works in, in, a, in a life like Pope Benedict's because uh, not only who he studied, Augustine and Bonaventure, but what he studied. Augustine's ecclesiology, his theology of the church, and, and Bonaventure's theology of history as the means of revelation. Because when you look at these periods of time, you recognize that there are, there are unique insights that are garnered in those periods. The patristic, for example, uh, really had a, a vision of the church but it wasn't systematically worked out. In fact, by the time you come to the end of the patristic period, you know, uh, 700, 800, uh, after St. John Damascene, you enter the Dark Ages as the church is sort of migrating up to the Frankish Empire and you know, evangelizing Spain and France. Uh, uh, there, there is a kind of hiatus. And so bon uh, Augustine represents the, the, the greatest achievement in the West for the patristic period of theology. And his work in the church is so key. And then you have the medieval period. Uh, and St. Thomas, of course, is you know, my favorite, but St. Bonaventure taught right down the hall at the University of, Saint, yeah. uh, University of Paris you know, as a Franciscan. And, and he captures something, too, as the seraphic doctor of, uh, this, of, of how God reveals himself, not in some timeless way, but in the context of salvation history. But there, too, the medieval period lapsed into a, a time of decadence. The late medieval period yeah. was really what caused the, uh, the split in the church. The third age, the modern age, really follows after the Reformation. And there is where you know, Europe, Europe is, is progressively secularized, split you know, between the Protestant and the Catholic until religion is privatized. But it's interesting because in the medieval uh, theologies, there is really nothing, for example, in St. Thomas's Summa that deals with the church. There is no tractate, there is no section where it's the theology of the church. Also, in somebody like St. Thomas, there is no section that deals with history, the theology of history. And so the church was really suffering. Theology, I should say, was kind of limping along in the 17 and 1800s without an ecclesiology okay, so and without have, a theology of history. Ratzinger grasps so both of them. So he's leading with ecclesiology. And also, what difference does it make that you that revelation is bigger than scripture? What would that, well, give me one practical example. Well, it, it makes a decisive difference because yeah. if your view of revelation is in terms of, of discrete, static, dogmatic yeah. texts, uh, then you don't have as rich and vibrant a notion of God's relationship with the world. Okay. And, it's and more that, immediate. Yeah, then you want it to be existential in a good sense. There's an encounter. Otherwise, you're in danger of, of misunderstanding right. where you are historically, a very important yeah. requirement for someone who will become a pastor and a universal one. Right. Yeah. In the medieval period, the church was the, was the <clears throat> air you breathe. Okay. You don't think about right. that until there's a shortage of oxygen, you know. Then suddenly in a secularized Europe, you have to figure out who are we? Right. Well, we're the mystical body of Christ, the Is family what, of God. When he Where wrote on are the, we? On in the introduction to Christianity, the meaning 
of Christian brotherhood? Is this where it's being expressed, that it's something deeper and more vibrant? Well, the, the, the introduction to Christianity is, is the result of a series of lectures that he had okay. delivered uh, in the mid-1960s. And, and as far as I can tell, it is the masterpiece. It is his finest work, an inspired exposition of the Apostles' Creed, but also the most acute analysis of the phenomenon of unbelief. Mm. He really understood exactly. the modern age, modernity, yeah, the sense in which, as Marx puts it, everything solid melts into thin air. That was the experience he had towards the end of the council. Destabilizing elements yeah. had set in. And then, of course, as a professor so at much. Tübingen, he's, right. he faces widespread student unrest, the revolt. Similar of the to 60s. what happened in, in the States. Very similar. That's right. And he saw it as an outcropping of, of Marxism and other liberal tendencies on the continent, yeah. and it's a slouch towards totalitarianism. And he knew it yeah. growing up as he did. In he, Nazi was, Germany. he was looking at the death of the modern age and he was looking at it right in the face right. because yeah. this student revolt was embracing Marxism with the zeal of a convert. You know, right. These students right. all around him were doing things that would otherwise be categorized as insanity. Right. Right. And, 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 and professors were caught up in this, even professors of theology. Yeah. And so here he is trying to retain a kind of deep yeah. spiritual sobriety and, and reflect this to the students who were coming to the lectures you know, conflict is being embraced as the key yes. that unlocks the future. Uh -huh. You know, Marx, but not I was just there. Marx. <laughs> Even yeah. in this yeah. country, it, it, I was it's right really there interesting. Was, uh, yes. Hans Kung had been a friend of his, and in fact had recruited him for this post uh, at, uh, at Tübingen, teaching yeah, dogmatic theology, uh, and also at the council. They were they were sort of chummy. Uh, Kung was an outgoing guy. He had this uh, this uh, this uh, sports car. He would give yes. Father Ratzinger rides around town. And, and, and Kung says that when, when the student uprisings hit Germany, uh, he, he found that Father Ratzinger was, he was a letter writer. He wasn't a man of confrontation. And these Marxist commandos uh, really unhinged him. And he developed a kind of complex against reform. But it seems to me that Kung has it exactly backwards. Here we see evidence of Ratzinger's courage his steadfastness. He refused to bend with prevailing winds. He stood high, I think, in the saddle. Unlike Kung, who was sort of swept up and, and succumbed to these uh, ideological vapors. Ratzinger... Well, how about Comunio? Is that his response to all this? That, hey, you don't have to run down this political Marxist stream. The church really does have an answer, and it's an answer of brotherhood and something deep. And yeah, yeah, Comunio represents a, a, an orthodox scholarly alternative. It was a, a journal. A journal of opinion, international opinion. I, I think it's been translated into about 16 languages. But it represented an alternative to Concilium, which was sort of uh, the, the organ of progressive left-wing Catholic But opinion. not at first. No, no, not no, at first. Concilium began in 65 as a nice journal. It came out in English translation uh, in hardback, and, 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 and yes. Ratzinger himself contributed to this. Uh, Skillebex had not really slipped over the edge. Even Kung was still within the periphery of, of, of you know, Catholic teaching, Catholic tradition. But by 67, 68, yeah. the articles that were coming out in Concilium are notably 
beyond the fringe, you know, and just pushing the envelope, embracing Marxism, advancing a liberation perspective, and, and really, again, embracing conflict as the key to history. And so you, you have to confront any tradition, hierarchy, authority, for us to move forward. And, and that includes truth wow. itself, and that yeah. includes God himself. There was even a God is dead theology that emerged, not only in this country, and, but you there. know, A number of, of the students were, were, were insisting that the figure of the crucified Jesus is really sadomasochistic. Right. I, mean, mm -hmm. at, I mean, they struck at the heart of the faith. The idea of revelation, the uniqueness of Christ, the indispensability of the church. I was there. I heard it. You I was uh, yeah. just a little older here. What year, and I what year did Camillo start? Though? I think 1970. 70. I think yeah. it was. It was only after five years of the Concilium project mm -hmm. that things began to really break down. And so, in 1970, you have Comunio emerging. De Lubach, but especially von Baldassar, right. along with Ratzinger. Yes. That's right. uh, the the, the yeah. proponents of the new theology, the Nouvelle Theologie, which was new in the 40s and 50s, right. but it was being labeled retrograde That's you know, right. in the yeah. 70s and 80s. How ironic. And the this. title is profound. Communio means more than just a journal. That's yeah. Communio signifies being in union yeah. with the Pope, yeah. being in union yeah. especially yeah. with Christ. And it emerges from an ecclesiology, a theology of the church, as a living, organic, right. See, mystical does this person. Lead? I mean, he, he then was it a big surprise when he's named prefect of the congregation, Doctor and Faith. I mean, where, well, yeah, there, there, what, what linked that from? How did he get from Communio I mean, to being there's prefect? There's a sense in which he has lived a charmed life because <laughs> this little book, Introduction to Christianity, caught the attention of Pope Paul VI, and immediately he he makes him Archbishop of Munich, yeah. and then. Uh, near the end of his life, he makes him a cardinal. I mean, Ratzinger was one of one or two cardinals who was able to uh, be at the conclave that elected John Paul and the one that elected him. He's been around a long time. <laughs> and that was a radical move for Paul VI because he hadn't had extensive pastoral experience. So it was a little oh, risky, right. but it yeah. turned out to be a yeah, great he, he was so decision. He was so beguiled by that book because it made Christianity credible uh, in a very compelling uh, and attractive way. It captures the brilliant balance of that resourcement and aggiornamento. Mm -hmm. He wasn't reacting and, and, and refusing to update the gospel, but he was doing it in a way that really had roots, a foundation. Yeah, that was the book that, that I sort of cut my own uh, theological choppers on when I, when I discovered it. Uh, and my eldest a, son, too, who took you, oh, who okay. worked through that, and, and that, that book shaped his, his nice. mind in a way that he's still grateful yeah. for. <laughs> I've co-opted one of his children. <laughs> <laughs> More than one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important to realize, I think, that uh, communio is the church's response to conflict. You have it, you know, with, with Marx, but you even had it with Freud, that conflict with the father figure. You have it, of course, with Darwin, that nature itself and all progress is rooted in the survival of the fittest and that sort of thing. I think it's, it's the air we breathe now, but then in the liturgy he found that this Eucharistic communio yeah. is the church's life and identity. Exciting. You got to the key word, now. So when we come back, we're going to pick up now. And what's the situation now with Pope Benedict XVI? What is live operative in him, and what can we legitimately expect without playing political games? What indeed will the Holy Spirit through this Holy Father do in leading the church? It's a little perspective for the future, but stay with us.
I think one of the highlights for me was being at the vigil with the Holy Father um, and adoring Christ in the Blessed Sacrament with the Vicar of Christ on Earth. And seeing Pope Benedict just um, made me love him more as a Pope. And being in his presence was just amazing. It, it made me feel closer to Jesus and you could just sense he's a very holy man. He really made us understand that we didn't come to Germany, to World Youth Day, you know, to see the new Pope, but we came to worship Christ. Well, we're here at Franciscan University, surrounded by students working the equipment coordinating and surrounded by the professors in our theology department, Michael Cirillus, Scott Hahn, and Regis Martin. Uh, Michael being periodically with us and the other two regularly and we've decided among all these that Regis is our expert, right? <laughs> so we start with him each time on Pope Benedict XVI. Now what's going to happen? You know, and we're not politicizing him, it's not really a crystal ball, but uh, it's good to have an air of expectancy as he moves forward in, in leading the church, and where will we, do you expect us to go? Well, I mean, great things are expected of him. Uh, God expects great things of him. I mean, here's a guy who is 78. I think, you know, John the 23rd was about that old, and not much was expected of him. <laughs> oh, he'll be a transitional Yes. <laughs> uh, and it was really the shortest conclave since uh, 1939, when Pius XII was elected. Uh, and great things uh, were expected of him. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that uh, the liturgy uh, will be the cutting edge because here is a man steeped in liturgical consciousness. Uh, it's in his blood, in his bones. And he has said a number of times publicly that the crisis uh, that, that besets us is really the result of the disintegration of liturgy. People view uh, Vatican II as a break, a breach with the tradition. We're now sailing in darkness. And he wants us to view Vatican II as a point of development. We need to reform the reform, restore a sense of he the He talks majesty. about connecting it all together, no, no, it, it's eliminating all the disconnect. And for a good reason, right? because the liturgy is the source and the setting of our communio. We don't have communio from public votes or public education or government. It's, it's celebrating the Eucharist that gives to us a communion in the body of Christ that makes us the body of Christ. And so he's continually returning to the liturgy because the liturgy is what renews us and gives to us it, our own identity. We're called a communion. <clears throat> the former Cardinal Ratzinger writes that it's in the Eucharist that the church is fabricated. The church comes into right, being in the right, Eucharist, so that's right. absolutely right. And if you go for the, the liturgy and damage it, you're going for the jugular because that's where the rubber meets the road with respect to the tradition and where communio is brought about. It's so interesting <coughs> that his work on Augustine focused upon the household of God and mm -hmm. the people of God because back in the 50s, that term was really being rediscovered, but in the 60s, it was hijacked. The people of God in the Vatican II documents became the, the, the means by which people said, well, let's democratize the church. We've got the People's Republic, we've got the People's Bank, now we've got the People's Church, and let's just democratize the liturgy and level it all and make it purely horizontal. And he was like, 
that's never what people of God meant. He's had to, as prefect of the congregation, get back to the real meaning right. and the core meaning and the core doctrines in so many of these movements, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people of God is a pastoral image and, and it implies a shepherd and the shepherd is Christ. Uh, you had mentioned Guardini uh, at the top of the show and he was an immense influence in, in Ratzinger's life. I mean, he really did pioneer much of uh, liturgical theology, but for Guardini, the centerpiece was always Christ. Mm -hmm. In the liturgy, that's the place people encounter Christ. Uh, and, and, and if we don't uh, find him there, we're not going to find him in the marketplace. That's, that's right. During his prefecture at the congregation, uh, he saw, uh, he had a pronounced sense that his job was not to merely be a, a, a watchdog and crack down on people, but really to serve the common good above all of, of, of God and His church. Yeah, yeah. So he saw it as a role of service. And it yeah, was and executed I mean, that gently, accounts actually. for the strictures against <clears throat> liberation theology, which, which occupied much of his his time as But he prefect. was also building bridges, wasn't he? At least from a, uh, to the Feberites and to sure. Orthodox and the others. These bridges but he was, were He was building big. bridges to the liberationists as well. As well, he all was, sides, yeah. You know, when, you, when you read, when I first read Introduction to Christianity, which came out in the late 60s, it was published in English translation by a Protestant company, Seabury, before Ignatius picked it up. Mm -hmm. So it had no imprimatur. Yeah. I didn't know who Ratzinger was. I didn't know he was oh, Catholic. I read the great. first 50 or 60 pages and I, I, I admired the calm serenity by which he listened to opposing viewpoints, found the true and the good, and then showed where all of that led. And it led to Christianity. It led to Jesus. It led to worship. And then I realized it leads to the Eucharist and the Catholic Church, you know. And by then I found myself intractably drawn oh, into his vision. But it was that huh. patient capacity in yeah. humility and charity to listen and to learn and then to draw out the good and then gently to yes, expose the yes, error. Yes. He does this with everything. With every side. As the archbishop, wow. as the cardinal prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith. And you can already see it in the first year of his papacy. It's, it's a great finesse, a, a remarkable clarity, which, which is singular. Uh, I mean, as much as we revere John Paul II, this mystic, this saint, uh, his, his encyclicals were really uh, pretty cumbersome. I mean, somebody said, instead of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we got the Mount of Sermons. Uh, it, it may have been a, a tribute to his phenomenological style. Well, they were very pastoral They're, at the that, same sure. time. They were touching people's hearts. But they were too long, <laughs> too wordy. Okay. With, with, with now you can say it. No, yeah. I still love them. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you, know, and, you know what? He's a Mozart man. Uh, this is something that, that needs to be uh, emphasized. That there's a lightness uh, and a, a seeming effortlessness to the music of Mozart. Uh, Karl Barth, who wrote a beautiful uh, uh, tribute to Mozart and said, when I die and I hope to get to heaven, I plan to meet Mozart first. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's sort of strange. What about, what about Mrs. Barth? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> With, with, with Mozart, there, there is this radiance, this purity. Mm. He is a man without doubt, an unproblematical mm. man. And Ratzinger is like that. There, there is this deep sense of serenity, security. He knows who he is, his identity, where he begins and where he leaves off. And for him, it's the liturgy that defines the relationship we have as church. 
That's going to be the focus, I think. More than anything else, more than anybody else, I think it was reading Ratzinger en route to becoming Roman Catholic that showed me Scripture's home is the liturgy. You know, that's where it is read. That's the only thing that has to be read. You know, it was really canonized because of its use in the liturgy in the first 300 years of the church. And so this, uh, this emphasis on the liturgy is also what enabled him not only to emphasize Scripture, but to capture it in all of its, its, its integrity and its unity. I was with a group of Protestants a few months back in Rome at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, about 30 of them. And uh, it was after Pope Benedict had, you know, Ratzinger had become Pope Benedict. And they were, there was a group of them, and they were marveling that the Catholic Church had as its pope a premier biblical theologian. Well, right. I was going to say he's also a liturgical theologian, yeah, but you know, and Bonavent. But good. I yeah. sat there listening, and then I finally chimed yeah. in because they were talking about his grasp of the Old Testament and the new, yeah. the yeah. unity, the diversity, this sort of thing. And that's and I, been his constant method in theology. Yeah. is to begin and end with Scripture. He perceived the authors of sacred Scripture as the primary theologians, the principal theologians in the church. But to begin and end with Scripture as it's right. read by the church right. in the Tradition. liturgy. Absolutely. And That's that is right. historically accurate because right. that was what Scripture was written for. That was where Scripture was read. That's also how Scripture is and, actualized. And that way of reading Scripture also along with the Eucharist, brings about communion with Christ, the living Christ. The church is the receiving subject. So he's pulling it all together in oh, common yeah. language. Right. We didn't think those doing exegesis have really had, could be liturgist yeah. or could be uh, dogmatic or systematic oh, he's, he's theology. He's a theologian's theologian. He's pulling when, them all when, three together. When was the last time we had so learned a theologian of, as Pope? Mm -hmm. you, you might have to go back as far as Pope St. Leo you know, the, the Great yeah. in the fifth right. century, who, you know, who helped negotiate us through some pretty fierce Christological controversies. That's a long time ago. This is a rare event, I think, to have him uh, uh, on the, uh, the okay. throne of the Peter. The one thing we haven't addressed is Germany and Europe. I mean, there's the note there, and uh, it was very prominent in his remarks and preaching before the election and after the concern about what's happening to the faith in Europe, sure. and particularly Germany. What's, what do you expect there with this? I mean, here's a, an old guy from an old continent, uh, uh, and he's presiding over the universal church. I mean, they didn't pick some uh, 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 thriving uh, churchman from the third world. It's almost as if we're going to give Europe one last chance to return but to But to Christ. save the best to last that's, as well. Right. I mean, and, and the name, ben, I mean, it, 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 yes. Benedict the Fifteenth was the Pope of Peace who tried to arbitrate an end to the First World War. But St. Benedict, the founder of, yeah. of Europe, the father of, of monasticism in the West, I mean, there's got to be a significance uh, to that. You know, it, it, it's so fitting, I think, for God and His fatherly providence to have given us John Paul II, whose, whose pastoral style, whose patient, courageous leadership got us through the craziness, you know, of the late 70s. And now I think we can really uh, consolidate those gains by seeing a new pope in Pope Benedict who is arguably the most profound and brilliant Catholic theologian of the 20th century. You know, he's carrying us into the 21st. But as you say, Father Mike, 
He is the one who I think has been raised up and almost granted a prophetic mantle yes. resting on his shoulders to re-evangelize Europe. This was the passion of John Paul, right. but yes. as a Slav, as a Pole, yes. he was approaching it from the east, but it's the it's western the part west. of Europe that is so deeply decayed. That's right. And so World Youth Day and so much more. World Youth Day, I mean, you can't just pass yeah, that, that by, that he gets, oh. he, John Paul II is supposed to be the youth pope, and he's supposed to be the great theologian, and what's his first stage appearance, World <laughs> Wide oh, with right. all the youth of the world, and that is God putting it oh, together. Right. It, you know, it reminded me because of Scripture of Elijah being taken up, but Elisha getting yes. the mantle right. and carrying yes. on and performing right double. Well, you know, the he miracle. has the same mind as Romano Guardini, as we've been saying. And Romano Guardini wrote a great book called uh, "The End of the Modern World,", world. Yeah. and in it, he the basic thesis is that contemporary Christian, the Christian West, is a shell evacuated of a living relationship with Christ by and large, and we're slouching towards atheism, secularism, et cetera. And that's how he perceives, I think correctly, Europe, Germany, Europe, the West. Uh, and that's a primary task of his pontificate is to address that secularism and moral relativism. The root cause it's, of this he sees again and again in different ways, but especially with the misdefinition of freedom. Yeah. If, you, if you misunderstand freedom and you think that freedom is primarily freedom from authority, law, yeah. tradition, then conflict is the key to progress. Mm -hmm. But if freedom is primarily freedom for the truth, then you live out the truth in righteousness and humility and love only in communion. This is what he was saying in World Youth Day in so many ways, but in ways that, you know, I think the young people got it. Some critics were saying, well, he's not speaking down to their level. Oh, the heck he wasn't, right, you know. Right. But the Holy Spirit made up the difference and filled in the gap. You know, Cardinal George uh, quipped that uh, he always knew there was a grace of office, but when he saw Benedict for the first time waving his arms. <laughs> like he never. He said, I've never seen that gesture before. <laughs> this confirmed that God had anointed him. You know, and after his election, you have these senile experts like Richard McBrien saying, now thousands of European American Catholics will be rolling their eyes and retreating to the margins of the church. Meanwhile, in a couple of months, you've got a million young people showing up <laughs> right. in Cologne to see this man. Yeah. You see, yeah. dissent is graying and wrinkled. Yes, that's, not that's the right. Truth. Yeah. Yeah. right. That's right. It's certainly, certainly exciting. Um, I mean, we, we don't want Europe to become another uh, 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 Africa, North Africa, which is now Muslim. Uh, you know, Augustine preached exactly. in Carthage. Or Byzantium. I mean, the centers of Christianity mm -hmm. right. in, in, in world history are now the centers of Islam. And Europe faces that prospect, right. and he knows it. Yeah. And so God, I think, has saved the best to last. And so Europe will either convert or will have no excuse. Yeah. Okay, on that note, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we want the final comments, the takeaway thoughts for our audience this day on this exciting development in the Catholic Church and the great possibilities with our new Holy Father. Stay with us. It's a great joy for me to encourage any of our listeners who are looking for a good Catholic college to look at Franciscan University. The reason why the church is involved in higher education is to provide training and education within a Catholic frame of reference. The academic program at Franciscan University 
is excellent. They teach the Catholic faith, and they teach it with enthusiasm, intelligence, with excellent teachers, some of them renowned throughout the world. Think about us, Franciscan University. We've come to the last comments, the last section on the theology of Pope Benedict XVI. We've followed his path from the beginning, growing up in Nazi Germany, highlights as a priest, as a cardinal, as a professor, as head of the prefect, uh, pre prefect of faith and doctrine, the congregation, and now into his papacy. So I'm going to ask each of our panelists to give us that takeaway. So it's something to move us on in our appreciation of what's happened here in our church. Michael. Well, thank you, Father. It's a privilege to be here with you folks. It's, a, it's an honor. Uh, just a selective <clears throat> expression of some of the emphases that he had in his uh, work as a theologian leading up to his uh, consecration as Pope. He saw divine revelation as the basis for all theology. He saw sacred tradition, and especially the tradition of the church's interpretation of revelation, as normative. Uh, he developed a, a communio ecclesiology that's centered in the Eucharist. Uh, he emphasized the centrality and necessity of Christ and the church for salvation and the relationship between the particular and the universal church, the importance of liturgical tradition, and the necessity for organic as opposed to artificial liturgical development. Uh, he notes the cultural crisis in the West of secularism and relativism, but he has a profound, maybe more than anything, a profound sense of history as sacred history. And so his tasks for this pontificate will be to deal with the ongoing culture of dissent, to uh, inaugurate liturgical reform, addressing the relativism and secularism of the modern world, simply in a word, re-evangelizing uh, the world. He really is uh, a man whose gaze is fixed on Christ the truth and the obligation to serve him and the church in charity and love. And so he has an inspired grasp of history and how the church and the world got to where we are now, where we're headed. And I, I think uh, once he said that <clears throat> uh, it's not necessarily the case that whoever is consecrated pope is the Holy Spirit's choice. But I think in this instance, oh, it sure seems it. Well, okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll work with that one in a moment. Uh, we'll move on to Scott. Right once again, there. I think we got the pope we needed more than the pope we deserved. Uh, I would say that as he is re-evangelizing the world, uh, my exhortation to our listeners, our viewers, would be let Pope Benedict re-evangelize you. You know, I, I am trying uh, to let him re-evangelize me, uh, and it goes back. I, uh, I know that the day he was elected, uh, several of my graduate students stopped me to congratulate me as though, you know, why? Well, because you've assigned at least 10 of his books in all of your courses, you know, and it's true. I had the privilege of, uh, of uh, writing the forewords to two of his books in English translation, The Meaning of Christian Brotherhood and then Many Religions, One Covenant. And, and, and after both books came out, by a divine providence, a kind of a, a, a coincidence, I had a chance to meet him in Rome and he signed both copies and you're not going to see those on eBay ever. <laughs> but you know, the, uh, the experience of reading The Meaning of Christian Brotherhood while I was still a Protestant, to, to read his biblical theology presented so clearly, so simply, and yet so deeply. This Eucharistic brotherhood that forms the family of God it captured my heart as much as my mind. 
and I couldn't put it down, and I've been using it as a text, but I would say, get his books. And if you see Father Fessio, thank him for bringing all of those sure. books into translation and into print. But I would also say, look at all of them, you know, and, and read them. Uh, some are deeper than others. Introduction to Christianity, which you touted so highly and deservedly. So that is not an easy read. My eldest son loved it. My daughter, you know, she has chipped teeth from trying to cut them on that particular book. Uh, not really. I would just say read him and get his newest encyclical and devour that and really allow the Holy Spirit to deliver the, the voice, the Word of Christ through Christ's Vicar to us, to not just to the world or not just to Europe, not just to America or to our bishops, but to ourselves. Take this before the Blessed Sacrament. Spend time in contemplative prayer and contemplative study. It isn't easy in the sense of easy breezy, but it's easy in the sense of being written accessibly so that with a little effort you can have a whole lot of insight. And so I, that's the one thing I would really encourage people to do is get hold of his writings. Okay, read them. And uh, as we said, the Ratzinger Report was probably the most illustrative breakthrough writing to understand early on after Vatican II what really was important. Regis. Well, uh, I couldn't be more delighted uh, with, uh, with him as uh, the Holy Father. And when he was elected, I was positively rhapsodic. I even wept openly, which I don't often do, certainly not where there are witnesses. Uh, and it, it seemed to me an absolutely inspired choice. I, yes. I couldn't imagine a better choice. Well, maybe myself, but uh, the <laughs> cardinals, they're not they crazy. Deserve us, right. <laughs> It was, it, was, it was a beautiful moment. It was yeah. a kairos, a, a serendipity. Nobody, certainly I didn't expect it. Uh, the thing about him that, that strikes me uh, is his modesty, uh, his gentleness. He's this retiring, shy, self-effacing guy who really, if he had his own druthers, would never have been a bishop. He wanted to be a scholar, a theologian. He wanted his books. And in a way, like Augustine, his master, his great mentor, uh, he would have preferred the quiet, sedentary life of a university professor. And, and Augustine oftentimes uh, uh, bristled at, uh, at uh, the trifles, as he called them, that stood in the way of, of the disinterested pursuit of truth. But the thing about Augustine and, and Bishop and, and, and uh, Benedict XVI is that long ago they gave up their lives for Christ. They don't own their lives. Somebody else does. And this is borne out, I think, in that uh, Episcopal motto that he struck when he became Archbishop of, uh, of Munich. There, there are three uh, symbols. Uh, the first is the passage from the third letter, I think it is, of John, co-worker of the truth. I mean, for Ratzinger, truth is really the centerpiece. Uh, and he says somewhere that we've given up on truth because we think it's too sublime. But nothing can happen without truth, and certainly not freedom. I mean, freedom cannot look after herself. And particularly when she becomes boundless, then she becomes unbounded. Truth alone. Uh, is there to guide and shape liberty. The other two uh, images uh, are uh, a figure of a beast, uh, a kind of bear, uh, a draft horse, uh, he, he, he describes it, uh, as someone who simply takes on the burden of a job, 
And this is exactly what he does. He, he's a beast of burden for Christ, for the church. And, and finally, the image of the shell. And this takes us right back to St. Augustine because Augustine speaks of, of that little boy on the edge of the sea trying to pour the ocean into the shell and he hears the voice, uh, he can no more do that than you can fit me into yes. your mind. I mean, the sense of God as being infinitely greater than even our best efforts to unpuzzle him. I think that's what, what uh, moved him to take up this idea of revelation, that when God speaks yeah. to us, reveals himself to us, it really shatters all of our expectations, exceeds uh, what it was we thought we knew. Well done. That's the Benedict that yeah. uh, I cherish. And the difference between us is you cried when you heard, and I giggled and oh. laughed <laughs> because what happened is we, I was celebrating Mass on campus with the students, and just as we began the celebration, they said, white smoke, white smoke, we, you know, we ha have a Pope. So I made the announcement at Mass that we're now going to go and find. And so everybody rushes over to our student lounge, fills the whole place, Channel 9, Channel 7, all the television people are there because they know it's going to be, uh, this is the place of action. And they announced it was going to rush again. Everybody laughed and cheered. It was such an exciting thing. And all I could think of is the Holy Spirit again, surprises. I had read 18 reasons why it couldn't be Cardinal Ratzinger. He was too old, he was too this, he was too much in authority, he was too... I'd have read it all, and here, boom. Yep. The next day, his homily, which we're gonna send you for the mere asking, on the opening of the conclave given to the College of Cardinals, so stated the church where it is, so indicated what was needed, that I'm sure the Holy Spirit moved in that, convicted, and we got action. Oh well, contact us, we'll send you a copy of this homily. Stay in contact with the university, distance education, be a student here, whatever. But till next time, may the Lord bless and keep you, show his face and have mercy on you, turn his conscience to you, and give you his peace, amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a videotape of this show, Call toll-free 888-333-0381, that's 888-333-0381, or you may call 740-283-6357, or write to Franciscan University Presents, Care of Television Productions, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.